Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson, or Minneapolis, or Louisville, or any American community where police killed African Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. In 1990, the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, a community renowned as a national model of racial unity and peace, became embroiled in a confrontation over race and dignity and fairness after a white police officer shot and killed a black teenager. Riots broke out. The town engaged in an examination over its racial policies from the police department to the school system. Were the efforts of Teaneck, New Jersey, dating back to the 1950s to build racial harmony real? Why didn't those efforts prevent another tragedy of police killing an African-American under questionable circumstances? Journalist Mike Kelly's book, Color Lines, investigates Teaneck's history and what the shooting exposed about the racial dilemma that America faced then and continues to face today. Now, with Mike and some of the most prominent voices in civil rights and police reform, from U.S. Senator Cory Booker to Congresswoman Karen Bass to the Reverend Al Sharpton and others, we're looking back to try to find the best way to move forward. How did Teaneck change? Why didn't the lessons learned from the police shooting of Philip Pinnell in Teaneck teach America how to avoid the murder of George Floyd and others? We find ourselves deep in the color lines, trying to understand how these lives can be wasted so fast and their memories forgotten so easily. Author Mike Kelly explains the dilemma and how it played out in Teaneck, New Jersey. Well, the wounds in this town are still here. I live in Teaneck. Uh, you, can, you can feel it when you talk to people who were involved in this case. You can feel that it affected them very deeply. <clears throat> the the Spath, uh, as I said, retired on a psychological disability with a pension. He moved his family out of New Jersey, he moved them to Long Island. He took a job in a school district there as a school security officer. But I, I haven't spoken, I've, I've exchanged an email or two with him, but uh, I've never really discussed with him <clears throat> how he's doing with regard to this case, but he has spoken about it. Uh, only a couple of years ago, he gave a speech to a police union meeting in Atlantic City, and that was recorded on video. And as I watched that, what I was watching, I think all these years later, was a police officer, a former police officer, Gary Spath, who was still stuck in 1990. What happened to him in 1990 is, is still very present in his, in his life right now. And uh, he's still bearing those wounds, but he's also saying very, very energetically that what he did was right. And uh, that he hasn't, he hasn't budged off that, uh, that premise at all. He believes that what he did that night uh, 
He said he didn't want to do it, but he felt that he, his life was in danger and he had no other choice. The Pinnell family is also feeling the wounds here. They feel that Philip shouldn't have been killed and that justice was really not done. And I'll just give you an example. You know, recently, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, of which there were several marches here in Teaneck, um, uh, Philip's sister uh, wanted to, along with another a number of activists, they wanted to paint a, a Black Lives Matter mural, street mural, as many towns have done. And what they wanted to do was put Philip's name on it. And they were told no by the town authorities. And so I asked the town authorities, why? Why not, you know, include people's names on it? You could include Philip's name, George Floyd's name, others, that sort of thing. And they said that there was too much pushback from the police department. So what it tells me is that is that even within the police department, all these years later, after many officers who were working in the police department at the time have probably retired, even all these years later, that there is still a deep-seated resentment over what happened there. Forgetting the victims of police shootings is not an option for Nupal Kiazolu. She is the 20-year-old Black Lives Matter activist defying ageism. She is also the president of the Greater New York Chapter. Um, so my name is Nupal Kiazolu. I'm 20 years old. I'm a civil rights activist and organizer from Brooklyn, New York, a full-time student at the Real HU, Hampton University, and Miss Liberia, USA. I didn't choose activism. Activism chose me. Um, when I was 12 years old, Trayvon Martin was murdered, and I rem remember my immediate emotions being anger and confusion. And for the first time in my 12 years of living, I was forced to come face to face of the realities of what it means to be young and Black in America. And I came up with this idea to hold a silent protest at my school, which entailed me wearing a gray hoodie and this message taped to my back stating, do I look suspicious? And when I went to school with my hoodie on, and I also got Skittles and iced tea to represent what Trayvon Martin had in his hand at the time of his death, um, it did cause a lot of controversy. And at the time I was in the deep South in Georgia and racial tensions were already high. And just uh, with Trayvon Martin's case, it made things even more tense. So when I got to school with my hoodie on Skittles and I see in my hand, I was met with immediate backlash from staff and teachers. And no, I didn't care. Like I knew why I was there. I knew why I had my hoodie on and I was not gonna take it off. So again, I go back to school the next day and the only ally I had throughout this whole, this whole process was my math teacher who was a black woman. Um, so I went back to school, like I was saying the next day, hoodie on, skills, iced tea. And I ended up getting written up for suspension by my history teacher. And before I went to the principal's office, I went to my math teacher who's a black woman. I'm like, yo, Ms. Gibbs, I'm about to get suspended. This is what it is. And this lady literally risked her entire career by marching down to the principal's office with me in solidarity with her hoodie on. 
And we debated back and forth with the principal. And instead of him suspending me, he sent me home to do my research and have my case ready for him the following morning. So that's exactly what I did. I went home, I did my research. I looked up my First Amendment rights, my rights as a middle school student. And then I came across the Supreme Court case, Tinker versus Des Moines, which in short is a Supreme Court case that established the right for students to peacefully organize within school grounds. And that was the focal point of my argument the following morning. And once again, my math teacher was right there with me with her hoodie on. And so we debated back and forth. And then when I brought up Tinker versus Des Moines, my principal was like, how the heck do you know about that at 12 years old? And I'm like, you told me to do my research. So that's exactly what I did. We ended up winning the case. By the time I got out of the principal's office, it was lunchtime. So my teacher and I went to the cafeteria. And when we got there, literally every single student in there had their hoodies on with the same exact message taped to their backs. And my teacher and I stood there in awe and I literally cried. And from that moment on, I knew that being an activist and organizer was my calling. So when my teacher and I went to the cafeteria after we got out of the principal's office, um, when we got there, literally every single student in there had their hoodies on with the same exact message taped to their backs. And it was students from all different backgrounds, black, white, Latinx, Asian, like it, it, it was just so inspiring to me and shocking because I grew up as someone that was severely bullied. So I didn't think that anyone was even paying attention to what I was doing, especially my peers. Um, but it just goes to show that no matter who you are, where you're come or where you come from, your voice matters and you're more than capable of effectuating change. University of California at Irvine's Professor Dr. John Murillo III takes a deeper dive into understanding Black culture and the idea of Black people's existence as humans post-slavery. His theory is that Blacks aren't recognized as full humans today after so many years of being chattel. There's this idea, uh, you know, Frank, and then UCI especially as a whole, but Frank Willerson and, and Jared Sexton came up with this sort of uh, uh, Afro-pessimism, right? And then there's uh, Fred Moten, who sort of coined the counter term Black optimism. And essentially, the, one, of, one, of the, one of the parts of that divide is, um, it's, a lot, it's, it's much more nuanced than this, but, but and it's, which, it, which also means it's kind of like, kind of pointless in some ways. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's like a debate, like if, if, it were, if things were like to like go, go down and there was a revolution or something, we'd be on the same side. Being in the academy, we like fight with each other about this, this stuff, okay, for, no, for sometimes no reason. There's a belief that, in, from at least from Afro-pessimist's point of view, that what slavery did had both political and ontological consequences. Um, and so, you know, the political is obvious, like we, we've been talking about that already, but, but with, we've also kind of been orbiting a conversation about the ontological, which is like with regard to being, like human being, like your existence, how we think of existence in the world and what constitutes get a, a person, right? a being that is human, right? And um, because of that part of it, because it, because what's, what it did was it bound up like the political with the ontological. So like political systems deter started to determine what was a person, right? And so the political stuff that was happening, the social stuff that was happening started to have ontological implications, right? That haven't, we can't shake those off right now. We haven't done it anyway where you have something that says in law or in practice or 
you know, based on the enforcement of it or um, just at, just in general uh, societal discussions, right? Black people aren't people. Black people are things or less than people with some some other some minus, you know, negative multiplied by people, right? Uh, that became like philosophy, right? That became like how we think of humanness, right? Um, and we talk about this with like enlightenment scholars and, and canonical thinkers all the time. Um, and we, we often have to push back against it a lot because, you know, when you're in grad school, you got to read all these people that may or may not have actually owned slaves while they were writing what they were writing, or you're legit reading a Nazi because he's a great philosopher. And so you have these people whose ideas about humanness and about life and whose ideas about uh, the sublime and about a human being and animal being and animalistic qualities and, 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 and the world writ large, you know, are definitely bound up with this divide that they themselves believe in between human and black, right? And so you're, we're pushing it back against an entire like uh, epistemology, like a system of knowledge. Like how do we know what we know, right? At that level is where we're talking about like how much, how entrenched this idea that black people aren't people, you know, really is. And so we, how do you battle that? <laughs> Right. How do you how do you shoot that? How do you burn that? How do you flip over that? You know, that's that's the pessimistic. That's the, that's the Afro pessimism of it. Right. Like that's the, like, oh, this this sounds like what am I supposed to do? Um, but really, it, it the, the pessimism is not really like a pessimism like that. It's a sort of philosophical disposition more than anything. More than anything, it's like, well, stop worrying about trying to save this stuff. OK, because it's all built on you dying. Get rid of it. Right turn it all over, right? Stop trying to resuscitate it, you know, because, or try trying to paint it with a new color or whatever, right? That's, that's really what the pessimism is trying to lead people to, is like, stop, disabuse yourself of the notion that you should rescue things from this place. Start over, right? Stop, stop pretending like you can make the government better than it is because it's already built on the principles that have disenfranchised you in the first place. So making it better on its own terms, making it better is actually worse for you. But making it better for you is really only making you more complacent and, and allowing the, the, the systems of power to kind of operate in new ways um, while you suffer. You know, you might feel a little bit more comfortable with your iPad or, you know, with, with I mean, not and apparently not, but this, but, but you know, $10,000 less in student loans or whatever, um, but not even that at this point. Um, you know, your minimum wage went up, you have your representative person who's black and the first black and Asian uh, vice president. And you have, the, you know, eight years ago, 12 years ago, you had the first black president and you're like, wow, you know, but then you wake up 12 years later and you look at the statistics and it's still, uh, I don't know if you guys saw that the, the old Malcolm X grassroots movement uh, research, uh, they, did, they, they did a sort of data collection on how many people, black people were killed uh, extra extrajudicially, um, you know, by police or by people who are deputized by police or whatever. Um, and that was in 2000, dang, I don't remember, 2015, 13, I, it was a while ago. Um, and it was every 28 hours. That was, that was the rate. And that was, so uh, given everything I've already said, that's, that's based on what's recorded. That's based on what's available knowledge. That's what's accessible to the public and what we know about. So right. we, all that combined, is every 28 hours. And that was that many years ago. What is it now? And what is it 
if we were to assume that we don't know the full numbers. Mike Kelly speaks with us about the Pinnell incident that happened 30 years ago. Pay attention and you'll notice the eerie similarities of what goes on in towns today when police violence takes place. In a word, the town was shocked. It, it was shocking this happened here. I mean, there had been these incidents uh, already. There had been questionable police shootings in New York City. There have been some questionable police shootings in other parts of the country. Just as there are questionable police shootings now all over America, of course, back in 1990, there weren't cell phone videos of these shootings. Um, but when the news got up that a police officer had shot and killed a black teenager, it was shocking. It, it, the people in the town were saying to each other, what, how did this happen here? Uh, a teenage police officer shooting a black kid? Why, why would that happen? The town was literally shocked and it was shocked on a number of levels. The black community was shocked and angry uh, that this has happened because in large measure, the black community had been nursing its own secrets and the secrets that they were carrying was a sense that they had felt singled out and abused by the police officers. This, the whole concept of driving while black suddenly emerged as a major, major concern in the town in which far too many black folks, mainly men, but also women as well, felt that they had been pulled over far too often by police officers. I, as a white person, a white resident, and I was shocked by this because I had never heard of the concept at the time. And I remember talking to one of my neighbors and I said, what are you talking about? He says, he says, he says, the, the cops pull black kids over all the time or, or black folks who are behind the wheel of a car. And ever since then, ever since then, whenever I've engaged in a conversation with a black person, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Yankees or the, or the New York Giants or, you know, uh, 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 the latest uh, moonshot or, you know, you name it. It doesn't matter. If we're having a substantial conversation, I will at some point try to find a way to ask that person, have you ever been pulled over by a police officer in, for reasons that are questionable? And I've yet to hear, hear a black person tell me no. 30 years after Philip Pinnell was shot, we still have racial profiling in America. Not much has changed. Tierra's a young lady who never thought she'd be a victim of racial profiling. This is her story. Yes, I will say that I had um, what I felt was an inappropriate interaction with the police. At the time, um, I believe it was around 25. I was driving my cousin's car, which is a, a luxury car, uh, but I had my hood on. It was cold and um, I had on a, a dark black jacket um, and she doesn't have tinted windows. I didn't have the music loud. I just was, you know, driving through the subdivision and the police lights come on. And um, I just, I got so scared because I know that I didn't break any rules. I was not speeding. Um, I had not gone through a stop sign. So I didn't know what to do. Um, I, I just kind of panicked, but the first thing I always remember, just Tierra, put your hands on the steering wheel. Uh, when the officer came, I said, you know, what did I do? And he said, oh, you didn't do anything, uh, sir. Um, and I, 
you know, I turned my head and he saw that I was a woman. He said, oh, excuse me, ma'am. So he automatically thought because I had my hood on that I was, I feel a black man. Um, and I just said, you know, what's going on? He said, oh, we just, you know, checking, seeing the people that are coming in and out. Um, but everything is fine. Everything's good to go. Uh, and you have a good day. And I was like, what? Uh, and my cousin, my little cousin was at, you know, my cousin's daughter was actually in the car with me and she was like, what is, what is that? And I had no idea. I didn't know what to say. I just knew that I did not feel good. I didn't feel good to, for him to feel as one, as if I, uh, was a black man. That's what I felt, um, to pull me over for no reason and then have the lights on. And I think it was because I was driving a certain kind of car. It's been 30 years since Philip Pinnell was shot in the back. The Reverend Al Sharpton reflects on that case, and he suggested if there were video, that case may have turned out differently. And although 30 years have passed, so much has stayed the same. I think that uh, looking back on the trial of Gary's Beth, uh, police accountability was on trial, as well as the image of suburban kind of, of relaxed life where the strife of race and class uh, stops at the border of, of, of coming across the George Washington Bridge. All of that was on trial. And I think that uh, many people, including me, came to the realization that uh, there was going to be the same inflexibility and the same uh, defend police at all costs in the suburb, in the laid back uh, community, uh, as it was in the urban cities. You had, you had this picture in your head, and maybe it was because you wanted to, that these people were more enlightened, more uh, uh, fair in the suburb. They're more accomplished. They, they, they're going to look at things different. And I think that the Gary faster I brought the reality to us that they uh, had lawns that were manicured and they drove better cars. They had the same feelings about police that we faced in other cities. And I think the fact that we are still continuing to face it, uh, it could be disheartening if I didn't come from understanding. Look how long it took over 200 years to stop slavery took over a century to stop Jim Crow. It's taken decades on police accountability, which has been the civil rights issue, one of the dominant ones in my life. But uh, if you look at those that fought much longer periods of time, it could change. Who are we to decide the timetable? We just have to keep fighting. Emmy award-winning journalist, historian, and best-selling author, Dr. Janice Adams, takes another look at where the problem began and how to fix it. When I was growing up, even more so now, the politicization of white religion, and it always was in this country. That's why the Lord above is conflated with the Lord of the manor. That's why there was a Bible that they would use specifically to teach enslaved people. Because I remember when I was a child, um, I had a conversation with my grandfather, who was a, a Garveyite, a follower of Marcus Garvey, one of the back to Africa 
activists of the early 20th century, but most important, he was a human rights activist looking for any technique he could, any tactic he could to just get respect for black people. Um, but I, during the middle of, for me, you know, the height of that civil rights, early civil rights movement for me, I, I was being confirmed in the church and I read in the, in the prayer book, this thing about make oneself lowly onto one's betters. And here we were in, during the day being beaten in, you saw it every night on television as though it were entertainment, but that was the only way the movement could cut through. And that's why also we say, come on, please. You say you didn't know, please. Um, it was every night on the nightly news before we had 24 seven news service. And so everybody watched Walter Cronkite. I just want to make one more point. Sure. It's not just about hearing it in the news, it's about doing it. These things don't just happen because someone else does it. It happens because we say we live in a democratic country and every time something is evil is done in our name, every time something is wrong is done in our name, we say, well, we had nothing to do with that. Come on. So every time you redline a neighborhood and say it's okay, every time a, you're part of a bank that makes sure that certain people can get mortgages and other people can't, you're saying it's okay. Every time you are part of a school um, board that allows certain things to happen in your school system and says, that's no problem. You're saying it's okay. Every time you are a doctor or a nurse who is treating black and brown people with, a, with less respect for them than you would for a white person, you are saying it is happening. You are saying it is okay. Every time you're a trucker who delivers something and knows you've delivered spoiled food, but who cares? You're saying it's okay. So there is no way to really say, oh, I didn't know, you were doing it. And that is what has to be dealt with in this conversation and in this reckoning. Through our journey, we've met people like Laura, who on the streets of Detroit have witnessed police violence firsthand. But what could she do about it? How does she respond? How does she react? Another time I did see a police officer he didn't pull a gun on someone, but he was rough house housing them on the sidewalk um, in on a busy, you know, this was actually in Detroit um, in a area of town that's got a vibrant light, nightlife. So, you know, lots of people out on the streets walking around and these police had this guy pinned down and it really looked, I was really scared for him. And, and um, I remember a group of us that were just hanging out downtown, um, we just stood there and we just were like, we're not gonna go. And the guy was like, you see how they're doing, you know, there's, he was saying something like, you see how they're treating me? And, and we said, yeah, we do see how you're, they're treating you and we're not gonna go anywhere while that, you know, until we know this is has a, a decent ending as far as we are concerned. And we, we basically stood there watching because we were, 
wanted to make sure the police knew you're you know we are paying attention to what you're doing to this guy we're not going to just keep walking and um <laughs> they they did kind of ease up on some of what they were doing to him as a result but now um it's i was so much younger when that happened and now i probably would be more feel, fearful to do that i think that you know ignorance is bliss you you were young and you had no idea like all i didn't have any idea of how potentially dangerous the police were at that point in time um when i was that young so looking back I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I do the same thing today, even though I think it's called for. I might, it might depend on the circumstances and the police officer, because I'd be afraid for my own life as well. South Carolina activist Cario Bennett talks to us about police brutality and how it affects his daily life. Things like that, police brutality happens a lot in certain neighborhoods, not so much in the suburbs because they don't have the activity that's going on around or uh, police patrolling their area all the time. Um, but the area I was grew up in, that I grew up in, it's like a very common thing. Um, walking down the street, you can just get asked questions by the police for no apparent reason, just walking, minding your business. Um, these days, it's not a common thing, as common as it was. I'm 32 now, so I'm speaking on high school but in today's time you still go through those things it might not be as frequently but i don't know it's almost like it's a a, a fear that's being pumped into african-americans but it shouldn't be a fear it should be a line of respect on both ends um so i feel like that's a part of the problem that we have and until a respect level change things are not going to change too quickly Yes, I think things uh, are improving in today's uh, time that we live in and how I feel things could continue to change is people becoming more aware of what's going on out here in the world, not just us African-Americans, but people of other color, other ethnicities. Um, once they start seeing and realizing what's going on, especially Caucasians, uh, because it's gonna take help from all angles to create change. And some of the things that's going on out here, if you don't see anything wrong with it, then to me, I feel like you're a part of the problem because you're not trying to help people come together. Activist Nupal Kiazolo explains to us why it's important for her generation to get involved in the struggle and to fight for the rights of others when it comes to police brutality. Well. It's imperative for young folks to be at the forefront of these movements because, I mean, historically, we've always been at the forefront. We've always been the people on the front lines carrying this movement. Young people are the catalyst for every social movement. Um, so, I mean, it's only fitting that, you know, we are centered, our voices are uplifted. And especially with this new racial uprising, now more than ever, Black young voices need to be uplifted and empowered. And we've seen who's been on the front lines leading in the streets, and that's young Black folks, young Black queer folks, young Black folks are part of the LGBTQ plus community, Black trans women, Black women. Um, so, you know, just uh, marginalized voices oftentimes um, have been oppressed within social movements. And now for 
uh, one of the very first times ever, like we have this space to really lead. And of course, there's always work to be done. Nothing is perfect. And we have to talk about protecting black women and protecting black trans women and queer folks in these spaces. But we have made so much strides as a community um, that we haven't seen in the past. So that's why it's important for young people to be on the front lines and lead now more than ever. Thank you for taking this journey with us as we explored the philosophies behind the police brutality on African-Americans and others. We also explored the activists who put their lives on the line to march so that you and I can live a better life. The characters in this story are as American as apple pie. As we get closer to what drives this dilemma, we will complete the story of Philip Pinnell and the tragedy that happened 30 years ago and how it relates to what's going on today.